Robert Lennon. How's it going? It's great. Can everyone out there hear us? Oh, yes. All right. We're recording this in front of a crowd of several. That's uh, true. And uh, we're doing a little early because Andy Greer has to jump on a plane and fly where? Glamorously to Iowa City, which is in Iowa. Yes, Iowa City. Iowa City, Iowa. Yeah, that one. Yeah. Are you giving a reading? Are you at Prairie Lights? I am. I don't know. I, I'm, it's just like this. There's like a panel and a reading. Yeah. And I only know what's happening a moment before. Okay, good. Well, it's good to keep you on your toes. I you know. keep myself on my toes. Here's what I'm going to ask you about. Um, we were talking last night uh, at a party off internet uh, about r spending a long time trying to do a novel right or any other piece of writing versus writing quickly, putting yeah. stuff out there, and seeing what happens. And we both had stories about something we dashed off that was the best thing we'd ever written. But I, f I fear like if my students actually heard that, then it would undo all of my years of work trying to tell them to revise and revise and revise and not just depend on the spark of inspiration. So is it your feeling that uh, these, these things that come immediately and don't need to be revised, that occasionally, I'm loath to say, actually do exist, do you, do you not get them unless you're putting the work in on something else that fails? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know because I just I don't want to believe it actually exists because then I would depend on them. I think, yeah, you work, work, work on something, and then that is what happens. You're a complete mess and a failure, and for some reason that maybe you let your guard down enough to actually make something that isn't clever and overworked and carpentered and the joint salt lightning, you know, yeah. maybe that finally you let yourself back to the state you were as a student, only have so many more skills than you had, so you can boom, make something yeah, and think, ah, oh, it's just a little thing. Yeah, but then that, that ends up being the thing that people like often. Why? Like, it's upsetting after spending five <laughs> years on my novel that I'm going to go and do a reading again about something I dashed off seven years ago because it's the most popular thing I ever wrote. <laughs> I shouldn't complain. No one should feel sorry for me about that, but, but that doesn't seem fair. Do you, want to, do you want to tell our audience, both here in Missoula, Montana, and on the internet, what that piece is and how it came to be? It was a piece uh, for McSweeney's. They were doing this big... Um, it's a magazine that takes a different shape every time it comes out, and this one was... And you've been in there. Oh, and, yeah. um, this was a broadsheet newspaper that was going to be sold on the streets of San Francisco by newsboys. And Dave Eggers' idea was like, now that newspapers are, are, are cutting all their staff, we wanted to make something that showed what if you actually hired amazing staff and had Stephen King do the baseball column, you know, like that. <laughs> the way Gabriel Gar Garcia Marquez used to write for his local paper. Right. Like a local paper. Um, and so he wrote, wrote to all these uh, writers, and his idea was to send me and my husband to a NASCAR rally because my husband is a car fanatic 
and see what would happen if we camped for three days with 40,000 NASCAR people. And I was like, all right, I'll do that. And we did it, and I came back. And unfortunately, the week I had to write it, I was hungover the entire week. <laughs> shameful, shameful, so much. I was not at all in my proper writing mode. Yeah. I was like not in my office. I was in the like guest room, mostly <laughs> trying to sleep it off. But then I was just writing 10 pages a day. I turned it in. And then when I got it back, um, Dave had written on it. He wrote me an email saying, like, I, I laughed out loud on the plane. I'm not going to change a word. <laughs> Which was. Great like, news, no, I guess. You're supposed to punish me. Punish me for being for, a terrible writer. That is not the way you're supposed to write. <laughs> you can't write hungover, just whatever comes into your head. No. And then that piece was like in that McSweeney's, in Best American Non-Required Reading, in like yeah. some thing else. Now it's in Best of McSweeney's. I'm really? ashamed. <laughs> you're ashamed not... You're, you, you have achieved success, but in the wrong way. That's what you're ashamed of. I think that must happen to the best of people. This is a, there's, there's a talk I gave recently about, um, about uh, the phenomenon of, this is why I tell uh, graduate students or writers who are starting out who ask my advice, which is, gra granted, not many people ask me for advice. But, <laughs> but when they do, I tell them, don't read your reviews. And I think they, the, the assumption is that I mean... Uh, I'm a very sensitive person, and I and I don't want to read negative reviews. I don't want to. I don't want to be hurt. My feelings to be hurt by criticism, and that's not the case. Actually, I, I mean, I don't like people saying I suck. But uh, the main thing is, even good reviews, and maybe you've had this experience. You get a good review, and someone says they like your book, and then they like it for the wrong reasons, and your internal reaction is, you're liking me wrong. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like uh, uh, the, the example I gave was like when you're a, t you're a teenager and you go through a goth phase and you put on white makeup and you dye your hair black and you wear black clothes and you listen to dark music and you sulk around the house and your mother says to you, oh, but you're so handsome. That's not what you want to hear. Or if you know? like a rock and roller does like a novelty song about a duck and it's an instant <laughs> hit and they're like, oh man. <laughs> sing the duck song every time and they do a yeah. concert well this is uh, I, I, I was enraged once by this interview with Phil Collins where he was out on, on tour with his uh, outraged by Phil Collins outright enraged by Phil Collins <laughs> he was out on tour with the Phil Collins big band or something like that he was touring around with a you know a, a 16 piece horn thing and people were yelling out uh, Genesis songs or in the air tonight or and this made him mad and I was like you know, you gotta kinda own the stuff you did and that people like and just be that thing or you, you gotta stay home, I think. Yeah, so what but, is the piece that you have to own now? Um, it was the piece that, uh, uh, it was a, sh a short story I wrote for an anthology of superhero fiction that I wrote in four hours because someone had to, someone was one story short filling their anthology and needed something fast and I knocked it out and sent it in and it ended up becoming a TV series and now it's the most famous thing I've ever written and, I, and it's not any good. <laughs> but, you know, but I'm not going to go out in public saying, what a shame, what a shame that, you have, that you've, uh, you've created this lucrative mini industry for me using my not best work. 
that doesn't go over well. You have to kind of you have to kind of own it. And you have, you know, I feel like this is this is related to the thing we were talking about when uh, at the panel we were on earlier when people were asking us about uh, um, someone in the audience asked about uh, having an editor. Do you have somebody edit your work for grammar or what have you? And we we're talking about no, you know, writers knowing people who can tell them when they're no good. Um, that uh, you know, it's kind of not our job to be the arbiter of that because we don't know the things that we think are strengths about us are maybe not our strengths, and the things that we think of as weaknesses uh, may not actually be our weaknesses. I think that's totally true because our what we think are strengths are actually our indulgences. <laughs> A lot of my time, and you know, I also want to say that like the. The piece that I'm saying I wrote so quickly, I set myself up for success on that because I took tons of notes, and when I sat down to write it, I knew how to write a nonfiction piece. I was like, I need to have a tone and a point of view, and I'm going to pick a certain poetic style, and yeah. I'm going to read David Foster Wallace, and <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with a Walt Whitman-y voice, and I'm going to do it alternating. Walt Whitman-y voice. Yeah. And I made those choices, and... Luckily, those choices were the right ones, but yeah. a lot of the time they aren't, and that's what revision is. So um, I, it's interesting that you went into it, though, thinking you were going to create a tone that is an amalgam of other people. Do you feel it's a fake tone? Do you feel it's not really you? Oh, no, I thought it was... I do th it's a lot David Foster Wallace, but he yeah. changed nonfiction in a lot of ways, sure. I think, or comedic literary nonfiction. Um, so, yeah, I totally ripped that off. A supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Yeah, which is maybe the one of the best, one of the best travel essays ever ever I mean, written. It's this amazing. is David Foster Wallace's essay about uh, going on a cruise ship. He wrote about the experience. And of course, what I learned about it was I was like the only way to make it funny for me, a story about me in a NASCAR camping setting, is for me to look like the jerk. Yeah. It's not funny for me to make fun of all the other people. Yeah. It has to be clear that I know I, the joke's on me. And right. I got that from him. So I set myself up. Like, I knew how to do it all. Yeah. Um, and I got lucky I made the right choices, but I, I had written enough to be able to fake it. Well, I think both of us have known writers or just sort of know of writers or other types of artists who find that thing that they do by accident, that everyone loves, and they change direction, and they just do the hell out of that thing forever and become very popular for it. I mean, there are many writers who are very popular for other reasons, uh, but, that, but that one in particular, do you, do you feel a temptation to, um, when you get positive feedback from an audience, to give people a little bit more of that? Or do you yeah. want to stand your ground and say, no, 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 that's not where I'm at. I'm going I'm to give you, you know, I'm going to give you what I want to give. I did try to write more nonfiction after that, and it didn't happen again. Really? Yeah, didn't happen the same way. The, were you using that same kind of tone? The, there was just something about that one piece. Something that about that piece, and the tone was right for it. And I think the, but then I, it happened again that someone was like, "Here's a lot of money to write a piece about a park," and I was like, "I'm not inspired, <laughs> but my bank account is." You know, it was right? for an anthology. I was like, "All right, here we go," and um, I did a good job. <laughs> and again, I'm like, I don't know what to say about it. It was because it was someone else's idea. I wasn't attached to it somehow. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's still not my forte. I feel like we've, we've come to no useful conclusions in this discussion. 
Well, except like you're, you have to do what you do when it doesn't come, which is do lots of reading yeah. and lots of trying out of things. Yeah. And that's all I'm saying. Yeah. So what is your advice to the, the audience members who are writing themselves? Well, I don't know, because the fun of it, the whole fun of it is when the inspiration comes and you made all the right choices. And yeah. I think when you're first starting off, you think that's happening every time you write. Because yeah. it's so, everything, it's amazing you can make anything. And that as you get older, you doubt yourself more or, you're, or you have better, you realize it's not always the right choice. Right. Um, but what I think I forgot, and you learn how to cope with not being inspired, how to write your way, how to write dialogue, you know, like not just have, take an Adderall and write a novel, <laughs> right. but like write something every day. But I, then you, I forget, because I've trained myself, that once in a while you take an Adderall and write a novel. Yeah. Like when you were young. Do not take an Adderall and write a novel. You know what I'm saying in a metaphorical sense. Well, I think what sometimes when the thing comes super fast uh, and it feels inspired, it actually is inspired, and stuff you've saved up and have not, you've never pulled the trigger on is now coming out and you do something really great unexpectedly. And other times when you feel really inspired and it all comes out really fast, all you're doing is just is just dumping a bunch of garbage that you know you can do, that you've done before, and it's easy, and it feels really good. It's the same feeling as when you're writing something excellent, except that you're not writing something excellent, you're writing something terrible. And apparently other people get to decide, which is the worst part. Yeah. Hi, Ed. Hi, it's Ed Skook. Hi, Andy. <laughs> Hi, John. How's it going? My co-host, Ed Skook, has just arrived. He was giving a poetry reading in the poetry reading area, and now he's done. Which is five blocks away. And so, how convenient! Actually, finished with an I thought enough time to get over here, which was uh, yeah. two minutes. Yeah. Um, then I forgot that I'm very slow at walking, <laughs> <laughs> and there are lights and distractions. Yeah. You know, it's kind of nice out. Writers are not. I looked at a bird for a little while. Meant to be ambulatory. What kind of bird? Oh, I don't know. Maybe it was a rat. I don't Did know. Did you notice the difference the between <laughs> the animal forms? <laughs> the crows in Missoula, uh, you can walk right up to them. You can get within three or four feet of them before they hop away. They're, they're much more confident than the ones in the East Coast, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, they might not, they might not be crows. Ravens? I, not, they might be people. I don't know. <laughs> what happened over there at that poetry event? Yeah. Oh, I see image. There's a lot of imagery. There was some metaphor um, happened. Uh, one of the, I was uh, introduced by a nice lady who, who read... Uh, a bio of me, which is sort of a composite of various bios that are of on other the internet. No, they're all oh. of me. Oh. But since I live, I've sort of lived someplace different every year for a long time or had a different job every year for like just since 2005 or 2008, um, that the bio was, was not only inaccurate of inaccurately representing where I am right now, which is 42 and unemployed with a small child, <laughs> but, um, but it was internally inconsistent. You know, <laughs> it had me living in different places, winning and, and, and losing. Towards the, same the, begin award. the beginning, it said he lives in Washington D.C., and then later on, he said it said that he lives in Seattle. Have you uh, ever lived in Washington D.C.? Lived there for a year. Oh, okay, uh, and he lived there for uh, eighteen years. I grew up there. That's true. Oh, that's right. Bethesda is it Bethesda? I, yes, Bethesda. Yes, Rockville. Yes, Silver Spring. Yes, Potomac. I didn't ask. I just asked yes. one question. I really. say yes. I and on that note, I think I have to go catch a plane. Go for it, my friend. Uh, let's hear it for Andrew Thank Sean Drew, author of many fine novels. 
This is the sound David, of hugging. David, goodbye. Great to see you. Great to see you, Andy. Good to see you. See you David. So, Ed, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Come on, go ahead and move over closer. closer I'm not getting punished for, for, no. for being late? No, no. We just we had to interview Andy without you just because he had to go. Yeah, that's better. Yeah. So, um, Nice to see you all. Thank you all for, for coming to the Brooks and Browns Club. You know what I realized belatedly that, that is, that's a trout reference. Because but, fishing is very popular here in Missoula. Yeah. Fly fishing. You have to understand that it's a trout reference to not feel kind of icky about it. Yeah. Or to think that it's a, a Nashville pun. <laughs> yeah, Brooks, like, Brooks and Dunn. Yeah, Brooks and Dunn. The uh, comedy. I think, were they a comedy singing duo? What are they? No, you don't know? Kind of were they a little funny, though? Other like, country. They had a shtick. They had a shtick. Okay, so country music plus kick dancing. I guess. Whilst, whilst grinning, no doubt. Probably. Yeah. We had, we had a nice time over at the Missoula Art Museum. Oh, uh, really? We were reading up there in the second floor. There's a folk art exhibition. It's nice. But it reminded me that you used to work there. I did. When I uh, got out of graduate school here in Missoula in 1995... Uh, I got a job at the Art Museum of Missoula. I was one of seven people working there. And this is good, uh, good advice for this, the writers starting out is to get a, a good writer job, which is a job where um, if you're typing something on a computer, it looks like you're working. <laughs> and where people will leave you alone and not look over your shoulder. And uh, it's ideally at a business that very few people come to. And working as the receptionist at the art museum on slow days, when we didn't have a new show opening, maybe seven or eight people would come through the door and give me $2, and they would go look at stuff. And then every once in a while, I'd answer the phone and say, Art Museum of Missoula, okay, I'll put you through. And that was my, that was my job a lot of the time. So I wrote um, much of my novel, The Funnies, at work. That's right. That's right. Yeah, at the art museum. One of the, cause I worked in an art museum, too, for several years yeah. uh, in New Orleans. Uh, one of the the oddities of, of working in an art museum is no matter what your job is there, you feel a little arty. Yeah, you know, you feel you feel some of the the valor of the of the, of the struggling and successful uh, artists. You are not one in any capacity, and no. it's all it's all just it's a fake feeling, but it's a good feeling. I don't think the security guards feel that. I don't think the security <laughs> staff feels that ennobling, but. Uh, but the I think the registrar feels, um, you know. I'm sorry. The what? Registrar. The registrar. Yeah, the R's. The curator. One of the R's is silent. Oh, all right. Uh, and uh, or in a different register. A different register. Than, than ah. one can hear. I felt I felt uh, very special working at the art museum in New Orleans for seventeen thousand dollars a year, <laughs> um, and having to wear a suit. Yeah. Um, to the job. Um, and, and, and doing a terrible job at it. <laughs> I just made me feel more like an artist. Yeah. Made me feel like my artistry was growing and developing um, with every uh, grant application that was turned down um, and every part of HTML that I didn't understand because I was also the web manager. Oh, you were? I was the grant writer and web manager. And I didn't know how to do either thing. And I worked there for two or three years and, uh, and did so badly that 
that it didn't bother anybody because they were only paying me $17,000 a year. <laughs> that was the amazing thing about the museum is, is uh, everybody was getting paid very badly. I mean, it's in New Orleans. It's a low-wage place to begin with. It's, it's full of art. The museum doesn't have any money. Yeah. Uh, the curator was the lowest-paid curator in the country or something. Everyone was paid really badly, so you didn't really have to do your job very well. But all, all, the, all, the, def, all the deputy administrators, deputy, I can't remember what her name was, the woman who really ran the place, yeah. Jackie, Jacqueline L. Sullivan. Uh, she was named after the boxer, John L. Sullivan. <laughs> really? All that she cared about is that you looked clean and, 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 and like made an effort to do your job, but that you looked okay. You know, men had to wear jackets and ties, shirts tucked in. Um, and if you, if you did that, then you were not bothered. If you sat at a desk and smiled and, <laughs> and weren't sloppy, then you were the best person they could get for that job. So did you uh, did you work on your writing at work? Did you did you almost exclusively, <laughs> almost exclusively? I wrote poems and read poems, and I would print out I would print out large versions of the poems, <laughs> and put them on the wall. I'd memorize poems and recite them to myself with the door closed, um, and uh, and it was, it was it was it was a good job. Yeah, I, I, this. I actually, I think I, I think I did an okay job at the Art Museum of Missoula. Um, the, the, many of the same people who were working there 20 years ago are still there now, and they're wonderful people, Laura Millen and Steve Gluckert. And, uh, and I love them. I'm going to stop and see them while I'm here in Missoula. But, uh, uh, but you, they would get very irritated with me because when they asked me to do something, you know, like hang some paintings or adjust the lighting or paint a wall... Uh, I would be grumpy about it because I'd been busy working on my fiction, and they would have to remind me that uh, that was not, actually not my job. Writing yeah. fiction was not what they hired me for. So, yeah. but uh, it was a good, it was a good writer job. But still, so it's, it's a source of, of enormous psychological conflict, I think, that not everybody survives, or as with with either their professional dignity intact or their. Uh, sense the whether actual writingness intact. Yeah. There's jobs while you're if you're trying to be a writer, the jobs that you work can if if you if you do a good job and you're promoted and you have responsibilities and you're paid well, uh, which is what you really sort of want to do, you'll stop writing. Yeah, almost to a person. What's right. the what's the job you've held the longest? You've managed at being a writer and being dedicated to these things that you were saying you would have to give up if you did your job correctly. What's the longest you've ever held a job? 4 years. And what was that? I'm 42. <laughs> so that's my I put it I put together my my uh, resume and it really is uh, you would you would you would you would assume that I was like a very angry alcoholic. <laughs> um with with lots of gaps in in employment that you might assume were uh, jail time, yeah. You know, you would think, oh, he gets fired a lot. And the truth is, I've I've I'm a very pleasant employee. Yeah. I've never been. Uh, I was reprimanded once. <laughs> for what? For what? Were you reprimanded? Ed? Uh, for some for some bullshit. <laughs> bullshit that you did, or that I, I didn't do. I didn't do anything. Oh, all right, all right. I really didn't do anything. I was working for uh, a really uh, uh, insane person at the Idlewild Arts Academy. Um, this guy had come in to be the, the principal or whatever for a, for a year um, and got fired about the time that I left. Yeah. 
um, uh, and he wanted he wanted his wife to have my job. Ah, yes. She saw ghosts a lot, <laughs> which is not. A, I mean, you yeah. know, it's that that's a human resource quandary, right? Because because if, if if one of the one of the problems with you as a hum, as as an employee is that you see ghosts all the time, you. If there's complaints about it, you as the human resource person are being asked to make a judgment on whether or not ghosts are real. Yeah. That's Which not in your just, job description. It's a hard it's a hard it's a hard call, right? Yeah. You could probably go back and forth on it. I think most people go back and forth on it. Whether right? ghosts are real. Whether ghosts are real or not. Yeah. You know? Certain times of the day you're certain there are no ghosts, and certain times of night you're positive there are. Yeah. Sometimes you wonder, am I not a ghost myself? <laughs> It didn't occur to me to wonder that until this very minute. I was wondering it the other day, because I, I live kind of a ghostly life right now. Right? Yeah. Um, and I was wondering if... You, you know, could go unnoticed if, if this, you wished. If this was kind of like what being a ghost is like, being 42 and unemployed. But on the other hand, you're enjoying it, and you're writing a poem, I think ghosts have a poem ball. every day. Yeah. I mean, ghosts are probably exist because they have such a great time living. <laughs> That they don't want to stop. I know that that's not what that, the literature that's says. That's not canonical. That's not canonical no. ghost storytelling. No. But I, I, I would like to think that that's representative of some percentage of ghosts. <laughs> are just, just we're at, they don't want to leave the party. <laughs> you know? So they, they just move around your house at night saying things like, I'd like another bourbon. They're mostly in the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> These are the ghosts that Making tend to go slice to places tomatoes. Where, where people go during parties, right? <laughs> no matter how nice your house is, uh, during a party, people are going to be in the kitchen. Last night, we had yeah. some people over to our house. Right. There were about 10 people. We were all in the kitchen, and someone farted. Oh, really? I think so. Is that why you made everyone leave the kitchen? Because yes. someone farted? Yeah. Come on. That's no reason to, to leave the kitchen. It dissipates. It goes away. No, plus, I want to... that's, no, that's, that's, right, that's writer farts. That's there's, there's, a nice, there's a nice man who lives next door, and his bed is right by the, the kitchen, our kitchen. <laughs> and we were being really loud. Oh, all right. All right. But somebody did cut one in that, in that room. Yeah. Or it was just the general human smell. That might have been it as yeah. well. It struck I mean. me. Or it was a ghost. <laughs> and the phantasmagoric representation of spirits... You know, we think of clouds and steam, uh, sheets, uh, gusts of wind. Yeah. I mean, surely there's, there's room to imagine that, that, that ghosts are farts. That's, and that's the title of your next that's collection. That's our literary discussion. That's our highbrow, <laughs> our highbrow uh, uh, colloquy between the novelist and the poet is, are ghosts farts? <laughs> or do ghosts merely fart? A symposium. Yeah. What is the difference between a fart ghost and a ghost fart? See, why don't they put you in charge of designing the panels here? Is what I'd like to know. Because, because that's a conversation I would like a bunch of writers who've never met each other to have with each other. Whether or not ghosts are farts or if they merely fart. Right. I, th- I think it's worth an hour. <laughs> Easy. Easy. We're, an hour. we're only five minutes in, and I feel like I could go all day on that one. It's true. Right? I think the last person that I don't already know is just left the room. <laughs> the discussion. So, yeah. no, so that's working out pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. Do you like? Have you written? You've written some ghost stories. I've written some ghost stories. Yeah. Which, which are the ghost stories? As funny as a ghost story? I haven't actually read any of your work. Um, 
there, there's a ghost in my first novel. There's a, there's a ghost. There is. Yeah. That's right. The old. The um, there's a ghost in my second novel. The ghost husband. There's a right? ghost in my third novel. Yeah, that's right. You have a lot of ghosts. And there's. Um, there are ghosts, really there are ghosts ghost in story. my fourth novel. Yeah. And then in my fifth novel, I put in some ghosts. Familiar is really. A, actually, Familiar and Castle are. That actually ghosts in them, but they're ghost stories. They're ghosty. Yeah. They're ghosty. They're spectral. But I've never, but I've never done. I'll say this: I've I've rarely done a, a, a canonical ghost, like a like a you know a translucent pale person who is haunting a thing. Have you ever shot a ghost out of a cannon? <laughs> Not in a book. Yeah. I just, mean, just in Ithaca. Just, just in Ithaca. Yeah. 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 We've got a few acres. You know, Rian and I haul the ghost cannon out to the backyard and point it into the trees and just sort of. Have you ever fired a real person out of a ghost cannon? <laughs> I haven't tried. It's, there's a warning label right on the side that tells you not to do that. You know our friend uh, Wendy Giles? Yes. Swearingen. Yes, I do know our friend. Um, I don't know if she listens to this or not. I don't know either. She ought to. She's a very busy person. Yeah. She has... Uh, uh, there's our friend who lives in around Niagara Falls. Yep. Uh, youngest or oldest of 12. Family had a restaurant... Yeah, a lot of family around. She has kids. She's on the school board. Very active, busy person. So she probably has time to listen to this podcast. Yeah. Now that we're talking about it. Yeah. Or I'm talking about it. You're not saying much. <laughs> um, I'm just letting you roll, my friend. But so we've we've visited a number of years ago. Yeah. And they have a, a, a grand house out in the country. The house used to belong to an inventor, um, and and a lot of the the, the apparatus of his invention tests are still around including this thing hanging off the barn which was what he would tether himself to um, <laughs> during his his uh, experiments with uh, personal jetpacks really yeah he had this little hook and this he would he would uh, hook himself up to it and and try out the jetpacks and uh, he had to tie himself down just in case he was too successful and how how it work he out was, I don't think it ever, he ever needed it <laughs> he never got off the ground no but he he had he had some patents stuff down in the basement all right do you i mean did did it occur to you that you you know that that, that you guys and uh and uh wendy and her husband would just get get nice and drunk and go downstairs get out the old failed jet packs and go out in the yard and have a good time man that sounds like a party it does sound like a party yeah that's some cl- kitchen clearing action right there i wish i was more of a tinkerer why well you're uh, a tinkerer with words ed well, I, I think for, I, I'd like to be an inventor. I think I have an invent, inventive personality. I don't think I could come up with, with something, and, and I, could have, I could have gotten rich. Can you think of any... Inventors uh, are self-employed. Can you think of any devices that you could uh, invent to help writers uh, do what they do? Oh, it's a, it's a fine question. Isn't I mean, it? What, yeah, in order to, to make a successful invention, you have to either improve on something... Uh, that already exists. So, you know, a better typewriter that also handles email and has pornography on it. Maybe there you go. Something like that. Or uh, <laughs> a pen that with, with por- pornography on it. <laughs> that pornography that exists. Comes no, out that's the, the you turn the pen that's upside right, down. That's that was right. the first. That, that was the forerunner of the internet. <laughs> the pen that you turn upside down. Yeah, it's the the begin. It's really what the internet. Is. The internet is basically that, except it's a different lady every time. I don't. I, I guess. <laughs> um, 
But the better inventions are, are solving problems that people don't, already, don't even know that they have. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So what are some problems that writers have that they don't know that they have, aside from alcoholism? <laughs> D- denials of alcoholism. Um, and uh, sobriety. It, it beats the hell out of me. If I knew what it was, I'd stop doing it. I'd, I'd end it, right? What problems do you all need solved? We have a room full of writers. Robert, who will be our guest tomorrow, maybe you can think about it. Think about your problems and come with them. Annotate it for us tomorrow. Yeah. I don't know what, what problems do writers have that they don't know about, but others know about. Their spouses, for example. Or yes. Yeah, that, that pretty much is 98% of my personality, I think. Or their, ch- or their children. You know who's handsome? Who? Children of writers. <laughs> Mine are in the lobby. Yeah? D- are they looking good? Uh-huh. Oh, th- handsome? They're right back there. Look at them. Gorgeous. They're not in the lobby. Those are some sweet-looking human beings back there. Yeah. Thank you for bringing them. And Ed, your son Oscar, was here until his handsome face erupted in cries. Yeah. I was just thinking that I, I was over at, uh, at this reading, and, and my old teacher, Greg, his son was there. Oh, yeah? He's a river guide, a handsome young man. Smoking. I guess. <laughs> and uh, when I was, I was in, in Seattle, I met uh, the son of a, a, another, a, a more famous poet. Um, who is who works at a restaurant with a friend of mine? Yeah, uh, very famous poet, famously handsome poet, and his son, not famously handsome, but more handsome than famously handsome people. Wow, that's not bad. And You're I'm thinking that the children of writers are usually pretty good looking. Here's writers the- are not always very good looking. No, that's because we've been writing. Our children haven't been writing. So that they still look pretty good. But I feel I, feel, I, I sort of I feel I feel good about seeing. I mean, seeing children of writers who t- t- turn out well. I have a question for I'm you. I'm hoping I'm hoping that, not that I don't think there's anything special about being a writer or being a child of a writer, but, um, but you know I, I have great hopes that things turn out well for Oscar. Handsomeness wise. Well, I mean, it doesn't hurt to be handsome, <laughs> right? No, it doesn't. More uh, power to him. But my question for you is, do you think that the children of writers, handsome or not, should become writers? No. <clears throat> but I think that, that if I had followed some of the other paths that, yeah. that may or may not have been open to me earlier on, <laughs> like if I had stayed at the art museum and stopped writing, if I had uh, become an attorney at law, mm-hmm. or a submariner, or whatever... Wait, a submariner? I was just thinking about it. I don't know what other jobs people is have. Is that like on the, the Seattle Farm Club? Why don't... <laughs> Submariners. Oh, okay, okay, okay. People who live underwater and do inventions. <laughs> I don't really understand what other people do for a living. Ed Skoog, underwater inventor. But I, I think that that becoming a writer, even though it is, has netted me zero profit, mm-hmm. a considerable debt, and a lot of anxiety for myself and others, is probably that was the choice that has made and will continue to make my son handsome. <laughs> and had I, had I, been, had I, had I gone into business, yeah. had I taken over my granduncle's title insurance company in Ottawa, Kansas, yeah. my children would have all been troglodytes. 
See, you dodged a bullet. For them. You took a bullet. For them. I became a writer so that my children would be gorgeous. Yeah. It was the only way. Good thinking. Good thinking. But what are these other career paths? What things could we have done that were not... It, se- it seems in- inevitable now that this, this, was w- this is where we would find ourselves talking to each other as though in an empty room when in fact we're in a room with eight other people. <laughs> So what, uh, uh, what, what else could we have done? What other paths were available to us? Were, were there any? You know, I, I, it, it, seemed, it seemed so difficult to make and construct a life when I was you know, like a teenager or when I was in college. Yeah. And I, I thought, with great, felt with great pity, my classmates. And, you know, I thought, what are the, what's, what's everybody going to do? <laughs> right? I mean, there, there are only so many jobs with names there's only there's a finite number of options this seems like a lot of young people who are not that bright um not all of them were very bright no you know or good at things yeah um but everybody you know by now for everybody has a good everybody's got a better job than i do everybody the dumbest guy <laughs> in my class is doing very well thank you doing what i don't know i don't know what they do internets <laughs> they do internet I don't know. Yeah, firemen. <laughs> They're all. I don't know. No. S- said the they former imposter things, HTML you know, editor. They run, uh, a guy that I never had any, uh, never thought was amount, amount to anything is a vice president at Yahoo. Really, which is pretty good. I mean, it, it's Yahoo. Yeah. I mean, that's not that much to brag about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he wasn't at Google. No. But. Um, I don't know. Some people, a lot of people ended up lawyers. A lot more people than I thought became lawyers and are doing okay. You were supposed to be one of them. I know. It didn't happen. It didn't no, work out God. that way. I'd be, I'd be bad at it. How, 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 um, how'd your family, how has your family reacted to this, this poetry career? Were they disappointed that you didn't become a lawyer? Um, I, don't, I don't know what they think about me. <laughs> or that they do. You, you see them, you speak with them. Not that often. They don't express their, their feelings about you to you? No. They, they don't people, say, don't, people don't do that, John. They don't people say, don't express their feelings about people to, Ed, their, to I, people. Ed, I'm having some thoughts about you, and I want you to know what they are. I'm, I've Hansons, written them down Hansons don't do that. on the back of this envelope, and I'd like you to read them, and then we can discuss them. No, we don't. That doesn't do happen do in that? Kansas? Do you do that? No. Yeah. I, talk, I talk incessantly about my feelings about things, though, and people. Yeah. Which is why people sit as far away from me as possible most of the time. Yeah, I'm going to switch over to this other microphone. Why is that? I'm You're just going to get a little farther away from you. Get a little. Oh, I get it. A little get it. distance. Yeah. Is a gag. It was a good one. It was a good one. Thank you. Um, I don't know what people. I don't know what my family thinks of me. I think they're supportive. Uh, they might not be. Uh, I know that I wrote. I wrote a poem a long time ago that was published in a little magazine, that was a work of the imagination. Spoken by a made-up person, yeah, who um, like had a bad Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> the poem is a, a made-up, fanciful poem about a bad Thanksgiving, yeah. And uh, the character like does a bunch of outlandish things, including putting uh, marijuana in the stuffing, yeah. And I think that a lot of people in my family think that I put marijuana in the stuffing. <laughs> they would I have wouldn't noticed. know where I wouldn't know where to get marijuana. That would not that would not have been tasty even today stuffing. now that it's essentially legal. Yeah, I wouldn't know where to. Get it. I don't know where to get any. Uh, one of the things I'm looking for oh, right I know now. Where to, I know where to get it. Well, you're Emily's landlord. You're a professor. <laughs> I remember a, a friend of mine who became a professor at a little college 
And he'd been in the city, and he was a pot smoker, and, and he was really disappointed because the place that he'd moved to, they didn't, he couldn't figure out where to get pot. Yeah. And I said, well, just like go try the philosophy department. <laughs> he said, well, they're not, they're not into continental philosophy. They what? They're not into continental philosophy. Continental philosophy? I don't know what it means, but it was a good, you know. <laughs> they were the wrong kind of philosophers. <laughs> oh, they're, they're, so they're not the they're stoner philosophers. School, yeah, they're from a different school. Yeah. So I don't what know. do you do with a philosophy degree? You become a writer. You teach philosophy. Teach philosophy? Actually, Virginia was telling me earlier that she has, is it a friend or a relative with a, with a degree in leisure studies? Yeah. And your husband has a degree in, in recreation. A BS in recreation. A, B, a BS in recreation. And he's a small you, businessman. I mean, he's a normal-sized person. He's average height. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, when you when that guy chills out, you can tell he's a pro. You can tell he's got a degree in it. Yeah, he's studied that. Yeah, yeah. The stages of recreation. So I don't know what I, I don't know what else I could have done except be a writer, because I think everything else, every other profession is is tyrannical. That, for instance, in you know, I I thought about being a, becoming a biologist when I went to college because I liked living things. When I was eighteen, mm -hmm. human female ones mostly. That didn't like me, right? But uh, and I was I was interested in science, and I took a class, and um, it involved a lot of math, and the memorization of facts about things, and I did not care for these facts. I wanted them to be different, and I couldn't make them different. And I've soon discovered that every other subject was like that. You could interpret literature, however you wanted, but um, even that turned out to be fairly limited. You could, anything, any, I've said this to you before, anything that you can win or get a good grade on, I just really don't want to do. But what, what a blessing it would be to have a job that isn't really tied up with your psychological well-being. <laughs> like what? And actually quite de depending, somewhat dependent on fluctuations in your psychological well-being. Right? That's true. So Having, uh, having, a, having a, a, an emotional range so the more the more emotional stability one has, the the less good of a writer one. No, I'm not saying that, but I mean it. It invites. I mean, it asks for continual personal self-examination. Yeah, it's like a permanent trip to the doctor, right? Yeah, um, and I don't think other jobs require that. No. You could be losing your mind and still be an, an excellent, uh, again, I don't know what, people, what jobs people have. Dolphin trainer, I suppose, is a job, right. for example. You, know? you could be totally uh, you know, emotionally numb to everything, you know? just in complete stasis, and be pretty good at your job. Yeah. Right? It doesn't matter for most jobs, and that would be nice. I would, I would even just say go that and do the job. most jobs, if you are the kind of person who can show up every day and do exactly the kind of thing you did the day before with exactly the same level of competence, you're by definition an excellent employee, whereas that's probably not the case for a writer. If you're doing the same thing over and over, you're doing it wrong, right? I mean, I guess some people make a lot of money that way as writers. Yeah. What's it like? What do you think it's like to have money? 
I've occasionally had had a little pile in, at, my, at my disposal. Yeah, after but, you have, but, you have a two, thing. but you have two children, so you don't. Yeah. You, as long as you have children, you don't have. But money. by have money, you mean never have to think about money. No, have I enough mean, money so that you don't have to think about money. No, no, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much money. It, I don't know how much money it takes for it to be defined as money. <laughs> but uh, I think it would be great to have money. I think it would be just marvelous. Yes. I would like some. I'd like to have some right now. I'm going to try to write something that will make me a lot of it. What That's is, my plan. What, is money, what does money look like? What does real money look like? <laughs> Man, you got to go down to the philosophy. I, mean, I know what dollars look one. like. I mean, I, you know, they look weird. What, what, is, what does actual money look like? I don't know. <laughs> Did um, you just have some pot stuffing? <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> uh, I don't know. But I mean, it's invisible. Right. Money's invisible. Um, so I think some sort of invention that makes money visible. <laughs> <laughs> that makes money appear where it previously wasn't. So, it would, so this, it would be a piece of software. But, but, I'm, but I'm trying to think analog. Bear with me. Bear with me. Yeah. It would be able to, you'd, you'd have, you know, it would start with software, in my view. This is my vision for it. It would uh, keep track of your bank account. It would keep track of if you were ha if you invest money. It would keep track of your investments. It would keep track of your sort of earning potential. And then it, all this data would be poured into a hardware receptacle that would cast a, 3D a holographic, three-dimensional yeah. image of, and you could make it whatever you want: piles of coins, or with uh, Scrooge McDuck yeah. sitting in the middle of it. Throwing it into the air. There's a real question: What should money look like? Right. If you had that print, that 3D meat printing, should look like what meat. money should look like? Cold it cuts. should look like meat. Should look like meat. It should look like the meat counter. Yeah. Is what banks should look like. Sausage links. Yeah. And the more sausages are on the, the links, the more yeah. money you have. Money is meat, kind of though. I mean, it should look like meat. <laughs> it should look like raw chopped meat. I mean, it's hard to put in a wallet, <laughs> I mean, or keep in a wallet. Um, the wallet that is your mouth. And I think the it, only would, place to put it, it would it would inhibit entrepreneurialism because you don't you wouldn't <laughs> want to get more money yeah. because it's gross, <laughs> right? It's disgusting. To be vegan would be yeah. to be poor. Yeah. Yeah. I think you make money that's like field roast. Oh, I've had field roast. Yeah. Do you guys know what field roast is? It's like it's like vegan meat, and and it's what is it made? Is it soy based? I think it's made out of meat. Glu it's gluten. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's the opposite of gluten free. It is gluten, um, and it's supposed to mimic uh, like a pot roast or. So uh, Reem brought one home once. My wife usually does not eat meat, and I usually try not to eat meat with her, and usually fail not to eat meat. Um, but she brought home the field roast, and we cooked it as, as though it were meat. And not only did it taste nothing like meat, it, it tasted bad. It was bad. Really? Yeah. Did I do it wrong? Uh, maybe. I've, I've enjoyed it. Really? Cooked, cooked well. In what, mm -hmm. in what form? How did you cook it? Uh, AJ cooked it. Who did? AJ. Oh, well, AJ, AJ, AJ knows how to cook. So field, field roast that's, beans. It's not fair. I know. See, if, uh, if he can show me the excellence of field roast, then I will accept it. Well, next time you're in Seattle, we'll, we'll make that happen. Okay. 
Baby um, wants some field roast. Is, did Kate Lebo ever show up? I, I don't know her, so I don't know if she showed up. None of these people here are Kate Lebo. Yeah. Um, did, was she going to be a guest on the show today? She was. Maybe she can be a guest on the show tomorrow with Robert Stubblefield. Well, I think that would be lovely. Um, so I made, I made some mac and cheese at lunch today. Yeah. Um, and it, it turned out weird. <laughs> Tell me about it. Uh, well, Jill, I, I was uh, making some, some food for the kid, and I, I hollered upstairs to see if Jill wanted some lunch, that she wanted some mac and cheese, but I'd, I'd made the mac and cheese you know, from the box yesterday yeah. for Oscar. And uh, so we didn't have any, but I thought, well, I can make some mac and cheese. I've cooked it before. Mm-hmm. You boil some pasta, and you make a sauce, and you put them together, and macaroni and cheese. But it was a, it was a whole wheat pasta. It was like a whole wheat rotini. Oh, and it just fell apart. No, whole wheat rotini is not right. How do you feel about whole wheat pasta? I don't like it. Don't like it at all. Does anyone? I mean, I think if you're gonna go that route, don't have pasta. Just have something else. Have some whole wheat bread. Whole wheat, whole grains of wheat, are good in bread. Whole wheat bread, but whole wheat pasta is not right. It was terrible. It's terrible. You know, this is the one-year anniversary of the travesty of Jack McCrone not winning the mac and cheese contest. And he's sitting right here. And he's, That's really our, our 9-11. Yeah. And it's, it's clear that he's suffered in the past year. The lines are etched deeply on his face. Is there going to be a macaroni and cheese cook-off? When oh, is there it? is. Sometime in November, I think. November. Yeah. So this wrong can be righted. What was it, so good about this? It will be the Freedom Tower of the, the Missoula MFA program. Is Jack winning the... hope so. Uh, so you're, you're, you're traveling. Who, me? Yes. Presently. Yeah. Uh, I don't live here. What did you have for lunch? That's a complicated question. Um, That's why I asked it. I got up uh, a little late, so I had kind of a... I, I'm going to say it, and I'm sorry. I had kind of a brunch... Uh, I, don't even, I don't even hear that word. <laughs> At the catalyst, you're brunch blind. You have brunch <laughs> brunch blindness. depth. But Rian said uh, says that she's uh, my wife. Rian uh, calls herself beard blind, which means that if a man she knows grows a beard, uh, she doesn't notice and does not think he looks any different. Whereas there are some people, as I said to you many times, some people in Ithaca who think I'm two different people. That might be actual it. blindness. <laughs> that might be an actual medical condition <laughs> that needs to be uh, addressed. So, so I, I ate um, some uh, yogurt and granola and fruit at the Catalyst this morning. And the granola, granola was salty. And I don't think that's supposed to be... It was so salty that I actually thought of maybe asking if they'd put salt in it by mistake. Uh, but then I just ate it. I shut up and ate it. Like they'd actually knocked over the salt shaker. Yeah. 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 And then, but I had already had at about 3 in the morning uh, hash browns at the Oxford... And then uh, finally, um, I ate some leftovers of Virginia's lunch. So it's been a very irregular food day, and I hope to rectify that with a with a hearty, satisfying dinner. So you went to the Oxford last night? Yeah, yeah, we went to the Oxford with Andy Greer and, and Jack and Virginia, and we had uh, we had uh, with the with the sausage gravy, the hash browns, with sausage JJ's gravy. gravy. No, not JJ's. It was the sausage gravy, but the, you. you they don't no, serve not, it anymore. They, don't, they no longer serve brains and eggs. Is it a health he risk? He needs them. 
as the sign says. Do you, do you need us or are you just spectating? I'm just enjoying Oh, good. Please sit down. Uh, one of the best natural line breaks I've ever heard. Um, I might have told you this before. Yeah. Um, uh, was in reference to the ox. Oh, really? Right, I told you this. This is in case in case was, the, the internet know. listeners don't know this. The Oxford is. What can we say about it? It's it's been open continuously it's for a multi-purpose room a century. <laughs> More than that, since eighteen uh, open continuously since eighteen eighty one. Yeah. Card room, uh, bar, diner. Used to have a strip joint attached to it. Yeah, the strip joint is gone. I didn't realize yeah. that until yesterday. Yeah. Uh, so what are you going to do with all those ones? What ones? <laughs> <laughs> what do you do with $1 bills? It's not that. You put them in a pile, and that's what money looks like. Ah, uh, money. Um, so the ox is, is uh, you know, it's a, it's a, I, I go there for breakfast. It's a nice breakfast. You can read the paper. Yeah. Um, but it's open, tw- the, it's open in some form 24 hours a day. Um, and somebody, I don't know who was it that said it. Uh, was was at a party they said I've never been to the Oxford before three in the morning (laughs) but in that space everybody sort of was you know was was ready to launch into oh you gotta go before three never been to the Oxford before three in the morning it's good it's good but I was at the Ox uh, a few weeks ago my friend Carl Adamschick was visiting yeah. uh, for 24 hours, the publisher of Tavern Books. Uh, fine poet, uh, one of the best poets our age. Fine press. Lives in Portland. Uh, he was visiting for 24 hours to uh, superintend the, uh, uh, a reading of the Greta Rolstad's uh, book, the, the, uh, the late Greta Rolstad's uh, posthumous collection that's redundant. Um, what's the name of the book? Notes on Sea and Shore. Not as simply a shadow. Includes the poem notes on sea and shore. Um, and so Carl was probably only going to be in Missoula. This may not ever be in Missoula again in his life. Yeah. So had limited just a couple places I could take him to represent it. So we went to the Ox for breakfast, but it was about 11 o'clock. He had flown in early. And uh, so we got the menus. We're sitting there. The guy comes up. And uh, I think it's lunchtime because I've been up since 4 in the morning. It's the baby. Right. Um, Carl orders some breakfast. And so I changed my order to a breakfast order as yeah. well. I was going to have a, a burger or something. You, you, don't, you don't think it's right for one person to eat a breakfast food I and another person to eat a lunch food? It disgusts me. Okay. <laughs> Morally and practically. Okay. what do you do? Culinary miscegenation. What the hell are you going to talk about? <laughs> if somebody's ha- one person's having breakfast and somebody else is having dinner. What is there to say? Not even in the same time zone. What kind of conversation can you have? What sort of... Civilized conversation can people have eating separate meals at the same table? So you changed your... One of those people is a ghost. (laughs) It's part of it, right? And ghosts don't have civil conversations. Ghosts either... um, What's what's the the Derrida... uh, There's ghost inspectors, right? Yeah. Uh, Ghosts are there to... Are these these presences to uh, prevent... Uh, historical trauma from being acknowledged. Yeah. Inspectors are there to reveal it. All right. Right. So if, if you're sitting at a table, one person's having breakfast, one person's having lunch. Uh, one of those people is trying to either repress a historical trauma or expose it. 
Um, and that's not what I want. No. With a meal with a friend. No. I don't want to go straight to the Holocaust. No. You don't. You don't want. You don't want trauma breakfast with your no, friend. I want a simple breakfast. And I think one of the reasons why we have distinctive uh, things that we eat at different times of day, why we have eggs and cereal at breakfast, uh, sandwiches uh, at lunch, and then you know more complicated, uh, heavier entrees at, at dinner. Yeah. Is not because that's what we want. It's because those are reflections of uh, of what it is that we have to say at that time of day. Okay. Right. You don't talk about dinner stuff at breakfast. You don't talk about breakfast stuff at lunch. It, lunch and breakfast stuff at dinner is right out. Are you willing to um, Are you willing to make uh, specific connections between certain, say, breakfast foods and the kinds of conversations that are appropriate while eating them? Of certain lunch foods and the appropriate conversations for those, and so on. Well, I think like uh, something like eggs sardou, right? Some I, I have to admit I don't know what that you know is. Eggs sardou is. I'm not quite sure either right now. <laughs> All right, it's a fancy egg breakfast. Yeah, right. Um, I don't know. I can't think of any other fancy breakfasts. Like uh, um, lot, some breakfasts are are whimsical. Mm-hmm. Right, like a waffle with uh, lingonberries in it is a, a whimsical. Right, the morning after your mother's death, yeah, you don't have waffles with lingonberries. No, what you do know. you have for Christ's sake? You don't. You don't eat anything. All right. I mean, maybe Cheerios. <laughs> uh, Whiskey. Something. Something with a lot of bran. A bran muffin, I think. <laughs> okay. A bran muffin. You know. That's what you eat a bran muffin after your mother dies. The morning after your, your this is horrible. <laughs> the morning after your mother's passing, I think a, a banana nut muffin is is the appropriate way to mourn. But you were talking about uh, how you changed your order when you were eating. The morning your after your father's death, yeah, is uh, is more of a uh, um, crepe. Really? Yeah. Your father. Yeah, have a little crepe. What's in there? A, del- a delicate crepe with uh, I don't know, like uh, what's in a crepe? People like ricotta or goat cheese, chev, a chev crepe. Chev will. Yeah. It has you to. You can have a savory crepe or a sweet crepe. You can have a lingonberry. I mean, that's yeah. traditional. Mm, a can you have a savory crepe after yes. your father's no. death? Well, I don't no. No. Because I ate toast. All right. Oh, you did. Well, I eat toast every morning, so. Okay. But it's a different question, right? I mean, the, the, the well, Ed, Ed Hirsch has has a great essay about how um, lyric poetry is is very much timed to the day, the course of the day. There's the obad, the poem of daybreak. There's there's a sort of voicing of of the day, of the afternoon, the 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 poem that's in full sunlight, where things are as they seem, right? Yeah. Um, and then as the day progresses, there's the the, the poem of you know fatigue of work or something, or uh, um, you know labor and the rest after labor and uh, the the poem of of the, with the evening voice right mm-hmm. um, that's uh, maybe sort of uh, uh, wise wry witty urbane you know the evening voice and then sort of the late the late the voice of 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 bedtime yeah. or still awake at midnight right the Philip Larkin poem is kind of a Midnight poem. Fiction does not work that way. But I think meals, the conversations at meals do. Okay, okay. Right. Uh, 
I think that's that's more important than what you're you're eating. And you, so so I think I mean it's it's it it, just, it it upsets me to see somebody having a hamburger and somebody having a pancake and maybe somebody having a steak at the same table. It's not right. Two of those people are ghosts. Yeah. Right. It's too many ghosts. It's haunting. And when you talk at a meal like that, you're just talking to yourself. Well, no one is hearing you. You're a pig, right? Yeah. If you if you if you want a hamburger that badly at breakfast, you're going to eat that hamburger in front of somebody having, uh, you know, scrambled eggs, gravy, you know, some bacon. Yeah. Then you you don't know much about people. Huh? You're not a good friend. If you're doing that. So was there going to be an end to your story about eating breakfast at the Ox? 11 o'clock breakfast at the Ox? No, I, 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 I switched my uh, order and I had, the, I had the, the, the breakfast. But of course, what you have at breakfast at the Ox is the same thing at dinner. The breakfast special is the same thing as the dinner special. It's a chicken fried steak with JJ's gravy and, and uh, hash browns. $8.95. But, you know, but, but yes, oh, I'll have the breakfast special. Or you know, I'll start describing it to the guy. Oh, I like the, the chicken fried steak. Oh, you mean the breakfast special. <laughs> but if it was at four in the afternoon, he would say, oh, the dinner special. The exact same thing, right? The plate is the same. Yeah. But it has a different name because it, it has a different tone. So It has a different <laughs> nature, even though it's the exact same product. But the things of the world are, um, <clears throat> are illusions anyway. So. Good point. Except for what we, the, what we overlay with them with our human relations. I think that's a fine note to end on. You don't want me to go on in this vein? I, I, I want you to save, save some of your fire for tomorrow because you are in fuego, my friend. De nada. De nada. All right. Thanks, everybody. Come back tomorrow and to hear us talk to Robert. That's right. Thank you very much. Sound of applause. That applause is very close. Let's have lunch. Are you hungry for lunch? Well, then let's have lunch. Do you want some lunch? Well, then we'll give you some lunch. Do you have a hankering for lunch? Well, then come to lunch. Because it's time for lunch. Box with Ed and John. That's right. It's time for lunch.